Hello, and welcome back to Plantopia. Plantopia is the plant health podcast of the American Phytopathological Society. And I'm your host, Jim Bradeen. I'm a professor of plant pathology and associate vice president at Colorado State University. And I'm really very excited about our conversation today. Uh, we're gonna hear from Professor Gary Chastagner. Gary is a professor of plant pathology and an extension specialist in the Department of Plant Pathology at Washington State University. And he leads the Ornamental Plant Pathology Program. Gary is an expert on the diagnostics, etiology, epidemiology, ecology, and management of diseases and invasive pests with an emphasis on ornamental nursery stock, bulbs, cut flowers, Christmas trees, and urban forests. Gary's research has also branched into climate change impacts on native plant health, methods of community engagement in research, post-harvest problems of Christmas trees and peonies, and entomological issues impacting the export of trees and the importation of tree seed. Gary works with state and federal regulatory agencies to mitigate the impacts of Phytophthora remorum, the pathogen that causes sudden oak death and impacts many different woody plant species. Gary is passionate about science outreach to growers and education through citizen science activities. Now, Gary has been featured a lot in, in popular press. Uh, to give you a very short list, um, his work has been featured on the Discovery Channel, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, MSN, the CBS Morning Show, CBS National Radio, NPR National Radio, Radio New Zealand, the New York Times, LA Times, Chicago Tribune, USA Today, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Good Housekeeping, Men's Health, Real Simple Magazine, and many, many other outlets. Gary is also a longtime APS member and has served on a variety of research committees and is the APS Pacific Division Counselor, Secretary, Treasurer, and President. And Gary has a large and very productive lab and a long, long list of publications. And today we're going to talk specifically with Gary about his research and extension on Christmas trees. Gary, thank you so much for being on Plantopia. My pleasure, Jim. So we, we are really very delighted that you could take time to, to be with us um, to talk about Christmas trees. And to, to start off today, um, you, you mentioned something to me that, that I, I think really sort of sets the scene here. It's the origin of your last name, uh, which I pronounce Chastagner. Where's your name come from and what does that mean? Uh, it's a French name. Uh, in our family, we call it Chastagner. We say Chastagner, but uh, I've been corrected when I've been in France. Uh, uh, they, they pronounce it Chastagnier. It uh, means chestnut grower. And so there's a region in France where there's a lot of chestnuts grown. And uh, and you'll see a number of Chastagners uh, uh, in, in that region, as well as other uh, areas. It is interesting in the U.S., there's a, a, a group of Chastagners that uses the French pronunciation. And then there's a group of us that use uh, an Americanized pronunciation. <laughs> So, so you're a forest pathologist, an urban forest pathologist. Did did your name have any influence over your career choice? No, not necessarily. <laughs> uh, when I when I first went to uh, college, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to college uh, and stuff. Uh, and when I first went to college, I wanted to be an industrial arts teacher, and so I majored in industrial arts uh, with specialty in woodworking because I wanted to teach wood shop. 
but I happen to have a biology teacher. The first time I took a biology class in the in a community college uh, when I was a sophomore, uh, and uh, and I that biology teacher, uh, Mr. Palmer, uh, was super good. And I was super interested in uh, that class. And so when I went to uh, Fresno uh, uh, State College in California, uh, I decided to double major. I asked questions about, well, could I double major? Uh, one in industrial arts, because they had a good industrial arts program. That's the reason I went there. But they also had a good biology program. And so I majored in, got a double major in industrial arts and uh, biology uh, and intended to teach woodshop. But when I, by the time I graduated in the early 70s, there were very few woodshop uh, programs left in the United States because of liability issues. Uh, and so I decided to see if I could go to graduate school. And you went to graduate school in plant pathology. How did you get, you get from biology to, to plant pathology in particular? <clears throat> I grew up in Davis, uh, California. And uh, so I, I got some catalogs. I got the catalog at UC Davis, and I was leaping through it. And I saw plant physiology, and I really liked plant physiology when I was taking the, my biology uh, undergraduate degree. And then I happened to flip a page, and there was plant pathology. Uh, and I was reading about it, and I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And uh, some of it, uh, I had worked at uh, UC Davis uh, when I was in high school uh, in a clean peach breeding program that the university had. And I worked in that program for a number of years uh, through early uh, when I was in uh, a community college uh, and stuff, but still lived in Davis. And so I said, gee, plant pathology sounds really interesting. And so I, I went and talked to the graduate student advisor who happened to be uh, Ed Butler, uh, who was a mycologist uh, in the department. And he happened to have been one of my 4-H teachers when I was a, a young uh, boy in uh, 4-H. And so we were talking and he said something to the effect that, Gary, we've never admitted a student from Fresno uh, uh, State College, California State University of Fresno. And uh, so we could, we could admit you, uh, accept you, you've got really good grades, but we won't have an assistantship for you. And I said, that's fine, I'll work uh, and stuff. And so I started. Uh, there, I sold hardware at Sears uh, in Sacramento and uh, started there. And within a short period of time, I was offered an assistantship by uh, Joe Ogawa, uh, who is a, a tree fruit pathologist and also did some work on tomatoes for a master's degree. And then when I completed that, he asked me, would I be interested in staying on for a PhD? And I had no intention of getting a PhD, but uh, he convinced me that uh, I could do that and provided the support and the encouragement and stuff. And so I ended up working on fresh market tomato uh, problems in California. That's quite a transition um, in, into this this really amazing field. And I'm always fascinated by how people do get into plant pathology. Um, there, there are a million different stories of, of how we discover this this incredible and, and very diverse field. And so how long have you been with Washington State University? So I was hired in uh, 1978. Uh, I started in uh, March of 1978 and originally was hired to work on um, 
and diseases of ornamental bulb crops uh, and turf grass. And it was a crazy sort of a position because I had turf grass responsibility for Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. <laughs> and only money to support the work in, uh, in Washington. <laughs> uh, and so it was pretty crazy because I had lots. Uh, in general, I have a very applied plant pathology program trying to help growers uh, solve disease management problems. And so I had plots in Oregon and Idaho and, and Washington and, uh, and stuff. And uh, it was a lot of driving uh, and things. And, and so I'm not on the main campus. I'm at a research facility that's about uh, uh, 35 miles south of Seattle. Uh, and when I was hired, there was about 26 tenure track faculty here and maybe 120 uh, people working here. Uh, uh, and so it's been an excellent place uh, to work. That's really wonderful. When, when did you get interested in Christmas trees? When, when did that line of research start? Well, that happened because the Christmas tree industry uh, in the Northwest, which is a fairly significant size, um, they were having problems with a needle cast disease, uh, an endemic needle cast disease that naturally occurred uh, here uh, on Douglas fir Christmas trees. And at that time, Douglas fir accounted for uh, probably about 90% of the trees produced in Oregon and Washington. And uh, there was a lot of questions about how to manage that disease. It was causing premature casting of needles before harvest. And so the needles, uh, so you'd have trees that would not have sufficient needles that they could be cut and marketed. Uh, and so the recommendations at that time were uh, multiple applications of fungicides uh, during the growing season, very little information available. They... WSU didn't have anyone working on Christmas trees at that time. The growers, out of frustration, went directly to the legislature and they said, we would really need some help uh, in managing this disease, figuring out how to manage this disease. And uh, so the legislature directed the university to <laughs> find someone to work on Christmas trees. I was the new kid on the block in Western <laughs> Washington where the Christmas trees were located. Uh, and by the way, the legislature didn't appropriate any additional money. Uh, they said, uh, okay, WSU, you need to take some money that you already have and work. And so I think it was the only time the dean's ever been uh, in my office. And he came over one time on a trip over here and stopped by to talk to me and said, Gary, we've, we've got an opportunity for you if you want uh, are interested in work to work on Christmas trees. And oh, by the way, we'll, we'll provide you $30,000 over the next two years uh, to work on it. Well, $30,000 back then in 1979 was more than it uh, is today and, uh, and stuff. And so I started working on Christmas trees at that point in time. And you've worked ever since on Christmas trees, amongst other things. Yeah, it's interesting how that we did a lot of work focusing on that. In 1980, Mount St. Helens blew up and covered my uh, one of my my major field trial with about a half inch of ash. Wow! I was wondering, okay, am I going to survive? You know, uh, uh, okay, here's. I've got all my eggs in this one basket, if you will, as it relates to Christmas trees is, is uh, you know, all the work that we put in uh, and going to go down the drain, if you will, because of that. Well, fortunately, uh, it didn't. Uh, but we were able to solve that disease problem by identifying 
when sporulation and release of spores was, was occurring. A graduate student, Ellen Michaels, uh, uh, did this work. And then we also were able to identify very effective fungicides so that the growers could control the disease uh, with uh, a single application of a fungicide when the new growth was about uh, one to two inches uh, in length. But it's interesting, Ellen, when she was doing her work, we were looking at the amount of disease in trees in the Pacific Northwest. And Oregon's the number one producer of Christmas trees in the nation. Uh, Washington is probably about fifth or sixth, but combined, these two states uh, produce about 40% uh, of the, the Christmas trees grown in the United States. And what Ellen found in doing surveys to determine uh, the impact of Swiss needle cast was that it was only causing uh, enough needle loss to impact the quality of trees at harvest on about 15% of the infected trees. But over 80% of the trees being grown at that time were infected by the fungal pathogen. And so because I'd done so much post-harvest work as in my graduate uh, uh, studies, and my major professor was very involved in post-harvest work, I wanted to know what the presence of those infected needles, sort of asymptomatic infected needles on the tree did to the post-harvest quality of the trees. So we arranged to ship trees back to Davis, where I had some friends to set up a, a sort of a display thing. And then we displayed trees at Puyallup. And what we found there is the presence of those infected needles caused the trees to dry out twice as fast and also increase needle loss. But there was a key observation at that point in time. We had no massive needle shedding or loss of green needles on any of the trees that were uh, handled at, at uh, Puyallup. But some of the trees, I think there were two trees that were shipped to Davis, they basically shed green needles within about a week of being placed indoors. Well, those trees had dried more than any of the other trees. So that observation then triggered additional studies to look at how far you could dry a cut tree before you had adverse effects uh, on the trees. And so that led to a whole series of studies where we identified critical threshold moisture levels of trees once they're cut. And as long as they don't dry below that, if you recut them, then they rehydrate and behave virtually the same as a fresh cut uh, tree. And that allowed us to then look at the moisture loss throughout the whole production marketing chain and determine where and if there were problems as far as moisture loss uh, uh, on trees once they're cut before the consumer is getting them and where that, uh, that problem is arising. Is it due to the early harvest? Is it due to shipping? Is it due to display of the trees on the retail lots? Oh, so, so a lot of factors really go into this. Um, it, it's not just getting that, that cut um, trunk, that cut stem into, into water necessarily. It's also humidity and um, exposure to, to, to wind or, or, or dry air. Um, probably a lot of factors that influence that, right? 
Yes, and, and you have the whole uh, range of factors, including the, the species of conifer that's used as a Christmas tree. Uh, some can tolerate more drying than others. Uh, when it's harvested, what the environmental conditions are mm -hmm. uh, in the storage areas where uh, the inventory is being built up. Uh, what we have shown is that there's very little moisture loss on trees during transit and shipment. And we've done shipping trials uh, to various places in the United States, and we don't see significant levels of moisture loss uh, uh, during uh, those shipping trials. Uh, we've even monitored the Capitol Christmas tree, which is an 85-foot tall <laughs> tree uh, that uh, uh, various forests compete to uh, uh, to uh, donate that tree uh, for use uh, in Washington D.C., and we've had I've had students who've uh, worked on following the moisture content of that tree as it's shipped across the United States, and and uh, and that tree, of course, is very large and 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 amazingly loses very uh, little moisture, even though it takes about a month to get it across the tree, the U.S. because it's. They stop in various places and it's displayed and citizens come and uh, grade school kids come and look at the tree and put the decorations on it uh, on its way to Washington, D.C. Those are real fun project. But uh, the moisture status changes in moisture status is uh, uh, is an important thing in maintaining that moisture status of the tree is mm -hmm. the number one way of maintaining the quality of the tree and reducing needle shedding issues. Uh, uh, if you start out with a healthy tree. Hmm. And, and you you mentioned that this early work you did with Swiss needle cast was, was on Douglas fir. You've also talked about sort of the diversity of different uh, evergreen species that are used as Christmas trees. Give us an idea of what other species are involved and how this has changed throughout your career. So if you look at the historical perspective of production of Christmas trees, if you're in the northeastern part of the United States, uh, balsam fir uh, has been and continues to be a, a fairly significant uh, species, but it's native uh, to those areas uh, up into Canada and things. Early on, a lot of uh, spruce uh, were grown. Uh, scotch pine was a very important species, even when I first started working uh, on Christmas trees uh, 40-some years ago. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, spruce and scotch pine were so important is they would tolerate a lot of different growing conditions. They could grow in soils that were maybe marginal or had too much moisture uh, and stuff that other species uh, would, uh, would not thrive in. Douglas fir was the principal species grown out here. The coastal form of Douglas fir, the intermountain form of Douglas fir is grown uh, uh, in, in the upper Midwest uh, uh, and things. It'll tolerate the cold temperatures. But the, one of the major changes that occurred uh, and really shifted the balance of what is being grown is that um, Fraser fir became a species that started to be grown in the 60s fairly widely in North Carolina, uh, and now accounts for probably 90% of their Christmas tree industry is based on Fraser fir. And Fraser fir is now considered to be one of the premium Christmas trees, and it's actually grown in many areas. Wisconsin, there's hardly any scotch pine 
left in uh, Wisconsin. It was widely, uh, Scotch pine was widely grown in Wisconsin. That's all been replaced by Fraser fir uh, and, and stuff. In the Northwest, uh, as I mentioned, Douglas fir was the principal species when I started uh, in the late 70s. Noble fir was just coming being looked at as a potential species. It's a high elevation species that's native to the Cascade Mountain ranges uh, and stuff. So they'd bring it down to these lower elevations and there was a lot of problems as far as terminal bud abortion and environmental related issues. And some seed uh, zone work was done and they identified uh, sources of seed of noble fir that performed well in Christmas tree sites. And so they started growing it. It now probably accounts for almost 45% uh, of the production. And it has excellent moisture and needle retention characteristics. So if you look, Fraser fir and noble fir, the production of those two species have really displaced a lot of the less desirable species, uh, uh, such as some of the, the scotch pine uh, and many of the spruces uh, in many areas. And so the quality of trees uh, has increased tremendously. And the trend is to grow these true firs, members of the Aves genus, uh, as opposed to uh, other species of, of conifers. And um, you mentioned seeds. Um, are, are, I actually don't know anything about how Christmas trees are produced. Are they grown from seed? Are they clonally propagated? Virtually all Christmas trees are grown from seed. And so there are a few seed orchards that's been established in the Pacific Northwest. We have Douglas fir and uh, Noble fir uh, seed orchards. There are seed orchards in uh, that are Fraser fir, particularly in North Carolina. There's still a lot of collection uh, in native stands of these trees that have been tested over the years to produce uh, progeny, uh, seed from those uh, regions produce progeny that perform well as Christmas trees. And then we're grow doing more and more work on exotic species. Uh, the species that are such as Nordman, Turkish, and more recently Trojan fir. These are species from around the Eurasia area, around the Black Sea, uh, Republic of Georgia, uh, Turkey. They have a number of potential advantages over some of our uh, other species. Uh, they have some uh, natural resistance to balsam woolly adelgid, which was introduced uh, into North America a number of years ago and is a significant pest, particularly of Fraser fir, uh, as well as um, they have some uh, tolerance and resistance to some of the phytophthoras that limit uh, where Fraser and noble fir can be grown. That's one of the things that we saw as a shift uh, when we started growing more and more of the like uh, noble fir in the Pacific Northwest and Fraser fir, these species are extremely susceptible to Phytophthora root rot. So if you have Phytophthora root rot introduced into a Christmas tree planting, usually via the movement of infected nursery stock, uh, you can have significant problems if you have a site that has uh, uh, the soil moisture requirements that are favored uh, that need to be there for uh, Phytophthora to develop. 
We've had some situations like with Nobelfer, there's another needle cast disease. We call it interior needle blight, different fungus than Swiss needle cast. Again, we've done a lot of work with those and have come up with similar controls like we have for the Swiss needle cast. So the growers are able to manage needle cast diseases fairly well. Uh, the Once you have Phytophthora in a production site, it's very difficult to manage that disease. There are no chemicals that can really be used that are effective uh, uh, in a production site. So really your choices are to abandon that site or shift to a less susceptible species. And that's why so much work uh, is being done right now on some of these exotics from Europe uh, because they seem to have more tolerance uh, to Phytophthora root rot. Mm. This is a really good transition into uh, the, the next question I, I had for you. And um, in one of your recent publications, uh, this was published in, in Plant Disease, um, and the, your your co-author, actually the lead author, I think was a former grad student, uh, Kathleen McKeever. Yes. Um, this this manuscript is called uh, Interactions with Root Rotting Phytophthora, Abies, Christmas Trees, and the Environment. Um, what, what's this paper all about? So Katie's uh, research really looked at the diversity of phytophthoras in Christmas tree production areas across the United States. Often uh, growers might read a publication out of North Carolina and most of their phytophthora problems are associated with phytophthora cinnamomy. So the growers might read that and say, okay, here's what they're finding. Well, we don't have Phytophthora cinnamomy <laughs> out here. Well, we, we have different Phytophthoras, Phytophthora cambivora, for example. Uh, the Northeast doesn't have Phytophthora cinnamomy. Uh, and so Katie tried to, to, she did a study and collected material and identified the Phytophthoras that are most common throughout the US in major production regions. Then there was this question about why do we have maybe differences in, uh, we may see that something is tolerant out here, a particular species is tolerant. We're dealing with a different environment. We don't have summer precipitation uh, uh, to speak of. And, uh, and we have a cooler temperature and we have different phytophthoras. And so if you look at some data coming from North Carolina versus let's say the Pacific Northwest, we may see that uh, Nordman fir works fairly well. Uh, we don't see very much disease on it at all uh, and stuff. Whereas in North Carolina, uh, it can be very susceptible in certain situations. And so her work was to look at the effect of uh, temperature, soil temperatures and stuff on the susceptibility of some of the major species that are grown as uh, Christmas trees. So what we did is uh, she was doing this, uh, these trials in controlled greenhouses that involved a lot of work, a lot of seedlings, uh, and, um, uh, and trying to understand whether there's, if something's resistant at a cool temperature or tolerant at a cool temperature to this particular phytophthora, is it also uh, tolerant at a a higher temperature, such as you might see uh, in North Carolina. What you found was that in general, at cooler temperatures, overall, uh, the cinnamomy, uh, I mean, the uh, the disease development on um, 
noble fir and Fraser fir was still quite high, but there were a number of species that had quite good tolerance under cool uh, production conditions. At warm conditions, higher temperatures, uh, that picture changed. There are much fewer species of conifers that were included in that trial that had good tolerance to, uh, to the phytophorus uh, that we were looking at. She looked at four uh, species of phytophora, multiple isolates of each of these species. So that helps set some, some ideas on, uh, well, where can we recommend some of these species? They may work well in Michigan, you know, or New York or the Pacific Northwest. They don't work maybe as well in North Carolina, one because of a difference in phytophora species and also because of warmer uh, production conditions. So it helped clarify a lot of the variation, if you will, in what the re previous reports were uh, and stuff as far as uh, what species really uh, uh, may have some potential utility as a tolerant species to, to be grown in areas where you can't grow Fraser or you can't grow noble fir. And what does this study tell us about climate change and um, you know adaptation of this this industry? So there's two things. Uh, the study indicates that uh, if we were to have warm, increasing temperatures, particularly of the soil, and combined with increasing periods of uh, saturated soil, we're going to end up with increasing potential for phytophthora root uh, disease problems. This may change. Uh, in other words, we may have a geographical region that normally doesn't have much of a phytophthora problem, but now we start getting prolonged periods of uh, moisture or saturated soils that are favorable for, uh, for phytophthora to develop. And so we're, we potentially could see phytophthora in those sites where in the past phytophthora was not a significant issue. In the other uh, situation, if the soils are warmer, we're going to see an increased risk from phytophthora and the damage from phytophthora because the phytophthoras will develop, the damage will be more severe. So climate change has the potential to change dramatically the the areas where certain diseases are important, what diseases are important, even needle cast diseases. They need, generally for needle cast diseases, most needle cast diseases, infection takes place shortly after bud break. Well, if you have needle uh, bud break in an environment where you normally don't have continuous, you know, drizzly rain like we have in the Pacific Northwest in the spring, well, you're generally not going to have too much of a problem with uh, uh, a needle cast. But if the environment changes and we end up with prolonged periods of cool, moist weather in the spring in areas where it didn't occur previously, the needle cast diseases will become more important. The other thing that we do a lot of post-harvest work on Christmas trees, uh, particularly as it relates to needle retention and needle loss. And I made some comments about Swiss needle cast and premature casting and moisture status. What happens is 
for most AB species and most uh, Christmas tree species in general. And we've tested a large number of the commonly grown species. If you allow them to dry, a certain percentage of the trees will begin to shed green needles uh, as early as three, but certainly seven to 10 days uh, after they start to dry. Uh, they just will shed needles. You can touch the, the branch and the needles just fall off. That's influenced by the genetics of the tree, the, the host, uh, which species of tree it is, and uh, it's influenced by how dry you allow that tree to go. So what we've shown is that trees in general, needle retention improves the later you harvest it, primarily because of increased accumulation of cold chilling hours in the fall uh, and maybe shorter day lengths. But if we end up with climate effects on how cold it gets in the fall or how cold the weather we have in the fall, and let's say it's a warm fall type of a situation, well, we'll see increased damage to trees or in their quality, their post-harvest quality, because they will not have as good a needle retention. Frazier fir has excellent needle retention as long as it receives cold weather in the fall prior to harvest. If you have a warm fall in North Carolina, you get increasing reports of green shedding of needles, even on the retail lot uh, and stuff with that species. Noble fir is the only species that we've tested that doesn't seem to behave like that. And one of the things as a result of the work that we've done, we've identified a very simple detached branch test. I used to do work on whole trees. Our post-harvest room was quite large. We would display whole trees, maybe 100 trees at a time. We have two very large temperature controlled uh, rooms that we do all of our post-harvest uh, work in. Uh, I started out in an abandoned uh, room with a Swiss needle cast. We had an abandoned building. And so we turned the heat back on and I used that uh, climbing up and down stairs, hauling trees up and down to do our first post-harvest trials. Now we have much better facilities, probably the best facilities of any place uh, in, the, in North America and maybe Europe. So when we do those tests now, of course, when we would do a test on a tree, that tree's cut, and we can't repeat that test on that same tree year after year to see, or we can't look at what would happen if we harvested this tree early versus late. So we developed a detached branch test uh, that correlates very well with what you see with a whole tree. And that test has now been used by people uh, across North America uh, and Europe uh, to look at the genetics uh, and the genetic variation within trees, look at the effect of the time of timing of when things are harvested. And we've been able to use that test to identify trees that really don't need cold acclimation, that genetically just have superior uh, needle retention. And a lot of that work is being done. We're doing that work people, the genetics people in North Carolina uh, are doing that work on Fraser fir, and there's people uh, in the University of Copenhagen uh, that are doing a lot of work uh, 
um, Christmas trees uh, in that area as well. So the development of that technique has allowed us to understand a lot of the variables that go into needle shedding and have allowed us to identify individual trees and sources of trees uh, that have excellent needle retention. Uh, and then, of course, they have to have good growth characteristics and other attributes. But before we started doing our work, very little attention was paid uh, post-harvest. All the seed orchards that were being established were just based on growth and needle color and needle length, not considering anything about post-harvest. Now, we have people air freighting us samples from trees and seed orchards wanting us to test uh, those trees so that they can identify the individual trees in the seed orchard that have poor needle retention. They cut those out, get rid of them. And we had a three-year project in Denmark, and that showed that if the mother tree, that the cone produced the cone, had good seed, uh, needle uh, retention, the progeny from that tree tend to have good needle retention. So this is a tremendous increase in our understanding of how we could improve the quality of trees simply by screening things in existing seed orchards and culling out all the trees that had poor needle retention, the progeny then from the next crop of seed from that seed orchard would tend to have uh, much better needle retention than previously. Oh, that's really that's really fascinating. And as, as somebody who's worked on uh, plant genetics for most of his career, I really appreciate the the level of genetic variation you're describing in these plants and the the strategy to really utilize uh, those genetics to select for for the traits that make this product um, so so valuable. Sort of opens another line of question that I'm curious about. Is there a, a future for genetically modified Christmas trees or gene edited Christmas trees? Certainly there may be. Uh, there's, a, there's a relatively poor understanding actually of the genetic mechanism of the, the specific genetics involved. We know that there's tremendous genetic variation uh, in the trees, just like you have for bud break. There's very little work, however, being done on that one because of, uh, I think, uh, one, there are not that many genetics people who are actually working on Christmas trees. <laughs> you know, the Christmas tree research group is a relatively small group of people <laughs> uh, and stuff. And in fact, one of the issues that I saw when I first started working on Christmas trees was that we really didn't have a good way of sharing information and talking uh, amongst the researchers and extension people. So we hosted a meeting, I think in 1988 or 1989, uh, a Christmas tree, an international Christmas tree research and extension conference. At that time, it was people from British, uh, you know, Canada uh, and throughout the U.S. that came to that. That meeting has since grown. And we're now, we just hosted our, uh, we didn't host it, but in California, we, we just this last June was the 15th a meeting of this group, this working group. That group. It's a small group. You know, we might have 40 people, uh, 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 25, 40, depending on uh, where it's uh, held uh, and stuff. Uh, that has resulted in a lot of collaborative efforts where I've worked with geneticists, uh, you know, in North Carolina. I've worked with geneticists in Denmark uh, and stuff to begin to try and answer some of these things. Uh, the There's a lot of... There's not that I'm aware of any specific effort 
currently underway to genetically modify ABs as for use as Christmas trees. I think there's some concern about, you know, consumer acceptability. There's big time concern as it relates to forestry, you know, and introducing genetically modified trees in a forest situation where you may have pollen and what that might do. I don't think people are ready to have this uh, happen, uh, certainly in forestry, and that falls also in Christmas trees. Whether gene editing, you know, uh, some of the gene editing things would be more acceptable, that might be. I think one of the other challenges, though, is we do have this diversity of species that are grown and the need to then the marketplace for Christmas trees in many cases dependent upon consumers have preferences and sometimes those are regional preferences. You know, their history is we've always bought this kind of a tree. We're looking for this tree. Now they may not actually know, you know, in the Northwest, they would say, uh, okay, we want a noble fir, but the consumers generally aren't going to be able to tell a normal fir from a Nordman fir. And in some cases, they can't tell them from a Fraser fir, but they know that they want a noble fir. And so there's an, there would be a number of obstacles, I believe, uh, you know, to, to utilize uh, sort of genetic modified uh, plants in a Christmas tree situation. Maybe those things will change, and if so, I think uh, there's a potentially a tremendous opportunity to deal with uh, some of these things. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this this unfolds. Um, I mean, a lot of factors go into into Christmas tree. It, it is, uh, it is interesting. Uh, there are some trees. Uh, I'll use European silver uh, for uh, Aves Alp. Uh, uh, as an example, it's not used as a Christmas tree. Uh, I had a uh, colleague from Great Britain. He told me that if you were growing uh, European silver fir as a Christmas tree and you walked out in the Christmas tree plantation with a chainsaw, all the needles would fall off the tree. <laughs> he said, uh, and, and it's true, we've grown that species here uh, for uh, some trials uh, and things. And uh, I venture to say that. Uh, if you cut and display that tree and allow it to dry, 80% of the trees may not have any needles within 10 days. They just drop needles like crazy. But the interesting thing is, balsam fir historically has very poor needle retention. That's one of the issues with balsam fir uh, historically. Well, we started doing some work on balsam fir with some collaborators in Nova Scotia. They're big into balsam fir. They still grow some balsam fir as wild culture trees. In other words, historically, if you look at one of the changes in the Christmas tree industry, most Christmas trees now are grown on farms and plantations. Seedlings are planted there, depending on where you are and uh, what seed. You know, it's going to take seven to ten uh, years uh, once you plant the seedling to get a, a, a harvestable size Christmas tree, you know, a, a six to seven foot tall Christmas tree. So what we did is in Nova Scotia, they leave trees in a forest that's been cut down that are producing cone and shedding seeds into the environment. And then they farm the wild seedlings that come up. Uh, so the harvest rates in those types of situations is pretty low, 50 trees to the acre. 
But so we tested uh, balsam fir from Nova Scotia using branches. They could air freight them to us and we, we test these. What you see in some cases is you might find if you tested 100 samples from 100 trees, you might find three that don't shed needles. So we test this the next year because it may not be, uh, you know, maybe it was a, a year year. Mm-hmm. fall. We test it the next year. Well, uh, there's clearly, so what we generally do is when growers are interested in doing this and stuff, we usually test uh, individual trees for a period of three to five years to identify ones that over that period of time have never exhibited any needle shedding. We do these tests in September to maximize our ability to identify trees that don't need cold acclimation. Because if we, if we waited and did these tests in December or late November, generally what you'll see is a shift from maybe 3 to 5% of the trees have the desirable needle retention to looking in December, maybe 65%. Mm. That's not the time to test. The time to test is back here because that addresses the issue. If we do have warmer falls, then we are going to be producing stock that genetically has the ability to still have excellent needle retention and not stock that, yes, in December, if it had cold and stuff, it has good needle retention uh, and stuff uh, and things. So even a species that has really poor needle retention, significant improvements in the quality of that particular species can be made and the fact then that we can identify in seed orchards, that's almost the immediate improvement in quality. And then we can also uh, propagate sign wood from trees, the superior trees that we don't have in seed orchards to produce, you know, second, you know, new seed orchards. And a lot of that is going on currently. So the future is sort of bright for uh, significant improvements in the quality of Christmas trees that are available to consumers. And the consumers play a a significant role because our research and our trials have shown that the single most effective way you can flip a tree that has a tendency to have poor needle retention, if you make a fresh cut and display that tree in water and do not allow it to dry, those trees generally also have good needle retention. It's a matter of not allowing that tree to dry after it's been cut. So retail lot operators, we've done simulated retail lot trials, developing information on how retail lot operators can maintain the moisture of the trees on the retail lot by using micro misters and stuff like this. Uh, And consumers have a significant role in improving the quality of their own trees by making sure they are properly caring for the tree once it's displayed in their home. That's great. Well, well, do you have any um, parting comments for consumers? I guess, uh, you know, a lot of the factors that you're describing really take place before the consumer ever comes into the picture. Um, so so what, what other advice would you have for how to select that, that, that perfect Christmas tree? 
Well, for consumers, when they go to uh, a retail lot, whether it's a big box store, a nursery, or you know a traditional uh, Christmas tree lot, I often get asked questions by reporters, what's the perfect Christmas tree or uh, what is a perfect Christmas tree? I purposefully didn't ask you that question. <laughs> okay. And, and what I tell them, it's all in the eyes of the beholder <laughs> because there are some who want a Charlie Brown one-sided tree or whatever the, uh, the issue uh, is. But everyone needs to, whether they're getting an inexpensive tree or they're paying uh, $300, $600 for that tree, some places, that's what trees, large trees, uh, cost. They deserve a tree that has the ability to maintain needles uh, and freshness. And consumers can do a lot when they go to buy a tree. Look at the tree closely that they're looking at, uh, to considering to buy. Tap the base of the tree. There should not be any green needles that fall off of the tree. Sometimes there'll be old dead needles in the inside. Those will fall off, they're brown. The grower or the person who's selling you the tree, they should be able to shake the tree. They have mechanical shakers at many places and uh, all those will come out. And when they take that tree, uh, make a fresh cut on the base and display it in water. What most people do not realize is how much water a tree utilizes. Uh, and we have a general rule that for every inch of stem diameter, on the trunk, you need a stand that holds a, a quart of water. So if you take a stem that's four inches in diameter, you need a stand that holds one gallon of water and you need to check it every day. Most of the water use is gonna be initially, but the uh, AB species, they'll continue to take water up. We're able to display trees at uh, 20 degrees centigrade or 68 degrees Fahrenheit, which is our traditional uh, test. On some of our best species, we're able to maintain those uh, trees in there for uh, the longest we've done is three months. They actually break bud and think that they're going to grow again, uh, even though they have no roots. But it's not a problem to uh, maintain uh, some of those species, uh, you know, for an extended period of time. The other things that consumers need to ask is if I'm buying a tree and I only want it to last one week. I have lots of options. If I'm buying a tree and I want it to last six weeks, there's much fewer options. Some species such as coastal Douglas fir, uh, grand fir, some of these other species, um, their, their limit even displayed in water is about four weeks. Whereas, and this is one of the reasons the AB species have become so important is you can go much longer with those if they're properly cared for. Uh, the temperature of the water is not important. You don't need to add water additives or anything like this, just pure water. It's making sure that that base is a fresh cut and continually displayed in water. And, uh, and then if you do see the tree, eventually all trees will dry. Make sure and remove that tree uh, because potentially the trees, if they're allowed to dry, improperly cared for, uh, and they're exposed to an ignition source, they can be a significant fire hazard. That's really great advice. Um, and Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Appreciate you being our host, our guest on uh, Plantopia Podcast. Uh, my pleasure, Jim. We just heard from Professor Gary Chastagner. 
from Washington State University telling us about his plant pathology research on Christmas trees. Thank you for joining this episode of Plantopia Podcast. Um, we will see you next time.